So this morning, um, we are we're continuing in this Advent theme, and if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you know that the word Advent is actually a traditional term that's given to this season of the year in the church, and traditionally, there are candles that are lit in churches uh, that signify the four different themes of Advent. There are four particular themes. There's hope, there's peace, there's joy, and there's love, and each week we light a candle to symbolize our emphasis on that particular thing that we're focusing on. The anticipation around Advent is the anticipation for those four particular things. We talk about why we long for those, that those are some of the deepest things that we desire as human beings. And this week I want to take some time and I want to talk about the topic of joy. You heard in the video that that was the theme. And I want to talk about the idea of joy and and specifically in our culture, um, I think this is a little bit awkward and I also think it's very timely for us to talk about joy here. Um, We we live in a really fascinating place. For most of us, and I'm going to speak to us that are, we live in the Pacific Northwest, we live in the Western U.S., we live in the West globally. When we live in our culture, in our land, the way that we do, we actually have really boiled down the purpose of a person's life to two essential things. When people say, you know, what's your purpose in life? They may not say this on paper, but I think in terms of our hearts and our minds and the way we think, we've boiled down purpose to finding comfort or receiving or experiencing prosperity, It's kind of the way we think in our culture. I want to be comfortable and I want to be rich. And those are kind of the things we dream about. Those are the things we long for. Um, Now, some would argue a little bit more. Some would say, well, no, no. In our country, there's actually, there's other things beyond that. Some would say that it's about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Anybody ever heard that before? (laughs) Let's talk about the pursuit of happiness for just a moment. Um, This nation was founded on the idea that human beings have certain inalienable rights. That human beings have the right to life. That human beings have the right to liberty. I realize that sounds redundant. You have the right to have rights, right? But we have the right to have liberty, to have freedom. And human beings have the right to pursue happiness. The pursuit of happiness. So so when the founders of our nation were crafting the original documents that defined us as a nation, the Declaration of Independence, they literally said, you and I have the right to pursue happiness, an inalienable right that this country is founded on. Now, there's some brilliance in this, and and here's why. What they were identifying, what they were recognizing is that deep inside of the human soul is this longing for something that, that we would refer to probably in church culture as genuine joy. We have this deep desire for joy, right? We have this deep desire to be happy, pure happiness. There's something deep inside of us that that needs the freedom to at least chase after it, to be able to know that it's attainable, to actually pursue it. That's part of what it means to be a human being. Part of being human is knowing that you can pursue being happy. And when that's taken from you, when you and I lose the opportunity to pursue joy, there's only one other option, and it's defined by one particular word, and that word is despair. When human beings cannot pursue happiness, they find despair. Now, notice I didn't say when human beings aren't happy all the time. It's the pursuit of happiness. It's just this idea that actually losing a pathway to pursue joy will cause you to fall into despair. So we have a country that is founded on the idea that you and I should be able to pursue happiness. So here's a question we should ask. How's that working for us? I mean, how's that working for us? Are we happier? 
Are we better off today than we were yesterday? Are things getting better? Are we, are we more happy as, a, as a, a population than we used to be? Well, the answer to that question, um, for most Americans, is pretty resounding, and it's an emphatic no. Um, in fact, if you do a simple Google search on American happiness, and I encourage you to do this, um, don't do it right now. Do it sometime after the service. I know you can. You're already Googling things probably, but where's a good place to go to lunch when this guy's done? Uh, but but if, you, if you Google search American happiness, the, the results are, are not happy. Let me just say this. They're not very good. Um, in fact, just this year, there were numerous reports that came out just this year, different studies that were done, research that was being processed, and they were released. And nearly every single major newspaper around the nation wrote an article and commented on some of this most recent research that was done. It was in the spring. And uh, most of the titles of the articles sounded similar to this one that was in the LA Times. It said, Americans are less happy and there's research to prove it. We have more depression, we have more anxiety, we have more despair than nearly any other time in recorded human history. In fact, there's another survey that's done, it's the World Happiness Survey. How would you like to be on that team? <laughs> the World Happiness Survey, it was discovered that people living in places and conditions that you and I would think are deplorable oftentimes score at equal levels of happiness or greater levels of happiness than the average American. So in a nation where it's an inalienable right to pursue happiness, happiness is in sharp decline. So where's the problem? Is the problem in the pursuit? Is it chasing happiness? Is there something wrong with you and I pursuing it? Or could it be that the happiness that we have defined as happiness and the way that we think happiness is achieved, could it be that that's actually the problem for us? See, I believe that somewhere along the line, and I don't think it was that long ago, somewhere along the line, we collectively decided that the pursuit of happiness means I can do what I want when I want it, and what I want is to be comfortable and prosperous. At some point, we just began to, to believe that the pursuit of happiness and what happiness equaled was I get to have my way right now, like Burger King, right? I get it my way, and I get it immediately. And by the way, my way is comfortable, and my way is prosperous. That's what we've come to believe. And yet, I'm not sure that when Thomas Jefferson sat around with a few friends and he was talking about the pursuit of happiness, that that's what he was actually intending for us to interpret this as. So, so here's the question. If we follow this to its logical end, will it actually produce joy for us? Will it make us happy? Now, you and I know that when I say happy, I'm talking about deeper joy. I'm talking about deep satisfaction. I'm talking about, I'm talking about there being something in your soul that says life is going to be okay. I'm talking about um, maybe even describing contentedness, that there's a deep sense of being content. Let me just ask you, do, does affluence and comfort really deliver on that? You get all the money and you get as comfortable. Are you really going to be happy? I mean, you, you can have all the comfort and the prosperity in the world. Will that really drive something deep into your soul? Will being comfortable drive something so deep into your soul that you will be a deeply joy-filled person? I mean, is there an amount of money that could be so great that you would actually go, you know, actually, at the core of my being, I am now okay? Well, some of you think there is. So the real problem, by the way, isn't that our culture has gotten it wrong. That's a problem, by the way. Our culture has gotten it wrong. But it isn't the biggest problem. The real problem is that the church, 
And Christians, especially in the West, don't see it any differently. In, in, in fact, uh, they, they hear Jesus and they say, well, Jesus promised a full life. I came that they would have life and life to its fullness. And since we define a full life with, with things like prosperity, things like comfort, when Jesus says, well, I'm going to give you peace or I'm going to give you joy, when he talks about being blessed, which he does over and over again, our assumption because of our cultural hardwiring is that Jesus came to deliver on those exact same things that our culture is pursuing. Because if you live in a culture that says a full, peaceful, blessed life is defined by comfort and prosperity, then you assume when Jesus makes the promises that he makes that that's what he's coming to give us. That's what Jesus came to deliver. But the reason we draw that conclusion isn't because of Jesus, it's because of our society. And and the worst day for any human being, the, the absolute worst day for any person, is when you have chased comfort and you have pursued prosperity and you get it, and you find out it will not make you happy. That's when despair is at its worst. And the only way that you can dig out of that kind of despair is to begin to question the system that led you there. How did we get here? What did we believe? You start to question the system and say, are there things that I missed? Which means you have to begin to ask, is there a version of joy that is distinct from our society's version of joy that actually resolves what's going on in my heart? Is there a version of joy that actually looks like that thing that I'm longing for, that, that my founders of my nation said I had the right to pursue? Is there something there? After all, we read things like this. Listen to this. There's this moment in the Old Testament, book of Nehemiah, Um, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and Ezra reads the word of God, reads the law of God to the people. And there's this moment where they hear it, and it's been so long since they've heard it that they actually respond by grieving. There's this this sorrow that starts to sort of leak out through the people. And then Nehemiah stands up, and in in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says that he spoke to them and said, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your what? How many of you have heard this before? Interesting that it's delivered in a dark moment, isn't it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord, joy. It's not just present. The joy of the Lord is not just possible for you. Literally, Nehemiah says, no, no, hold on. In the middle of this dark moment, the joy of the Lord, it is your strength. So whatever this is that we're talking about, this thing that Jesus is offering us, this idea of joy that's anticipated during the Advent, it is clear just based on this one verse that it's not something that only occurs during times of comfort and prosperity, right? It's actually being presented just in this one moment that it's something that will pull us through when there is no prosperity and no comfort on the horizon. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Like someone comes to you and they say to you, what are you good at? You can say things like, well, I'm good at math. (laughs) I'm good with languages. I'm good with leading people. I can manage systems. Or you can say, you know what my strength is? I'm really good at joy. That might not get you a job, right? Unless it's a coffee stand. Then you might get a job there, right? I'm really good at joy. It might not get you a job, but isn't it an amazing thing to think your joy can be your strength? That sounds a whole lot better than despair. Amen? So this is what people were looking for in the Christ. And this gives us some context to the angel's announcement that we read this time of year in Luke chapter 2. Listen to these words. Verse 8 of Luke 2, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, what did he say? Fear not, right? We've already talked about this. That's what angels always say. Fear not, for behold, I bring you, now listen to this sentence, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Notice the structure of this announcement. Notice the structure of this sentence. It's good news that joy, the good news is that this joy, it's almost like an object. It's almost like something that's been wrapped up. There's been a bow that's been tied upon it. It's been brought to the house and it's being delivered. That joy is an object that is being given to all the people. Like because of this moment that is happening in Bethlehem, joy is made possible. It's being given like a gift to all humanity. You fast forward in the ministry of Jesus in, in the book of John in chapter 15. It's actually one of the most intimate conversations that Jesus has with his disciples, John 15, 16, 17. And, and you read this in John 15, verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Like Jesus literally says about his teaching, he says, these things I've been teaching you, the point of this teaching is that you will receive that which was announced at my birth and that it would be full in you, that you would have joy, that like pulling into the gas station, your tank would be topped off and you would be full of joy because of me. That's what he wants for all of us. And so this whole thing comes full circle. Suddenly you realize we have this desire for ourselves, this inalienable right that says there's something inside of me that wants to pursue joy. And then you discover this is actually God's desire for us. This is God's desire for me. This is God's desire for you. Which means that the pursuit of this joy, it isn't just acceptable. It's responsible. It's what you do with the gift that's been given to you. Are you pursuing the joy that has been gifted to you through Jesus Christ? This is important for us to understand that we can pursue this kind of happiness because some people, when they experience despair, they make the decision to no longer pursue joy. I'm not going to chase after anything because I don't want to be disappointed, right? Like they set, they set up expectations for themselves. They believe pursuing joy is a dead end. They say that if you really want serenity in life, don't pursue happiness because anything that you try to find joy in, it will just, it'll fade. It's like sand in your hand. It will just slip out of your grip. You can't cling to it any longer. And so no matter what it is, it'll disappoint you. Now, now part of me understands this. So they, they set up expectations for themselves. And I get it. I get this. Because um, since the early 2000s, I've been a Washington State Cougar fan. <laughs> I learned a few years ago. I just need to lower my expectations, Right? Expect to be disappointed. Don't put any hope. Don't find any joy in them. Just start every single foot game, football game going, how much are they going to lose by? And it's amazing how you can just manage your expectations with that, right? You just, you just lower your expectations and you won't be disappointed. Eventually, people discover this. If you want to learn to survive, you have to expect the worst. And we translate this to every category of our lives. In fact, you know, philosophers for years, they've been talking about this idea of detachment. It's actually deep at the heart of a lot of philosophy is this idea that we detach ourselves. They basically say, don't give your heart to anything. 
Don't give your heart to anything, because if you give your heart to something, you're just going to have your heart chewed up and spit back out at you. You can't give your heart to anything, so detach from those things. Don't give yourself to anyone or anything, because you'll just be let down. In fact, back in the, in the 300s or 200s BC, right around there, the Greek philosopher Epicurus developed a program that would rid the world of anxiety. He and his friends got together in a garden, and they said, how do we like rid the world of anxiety? They came up with four steps, and I'm going to share them with you. Um, step number one, they said, don't believe in God or the gods. That's just the first place to do this. Just like don't attach yourself to God because, first of all, they probably don't exist. And if God does exist, do you really think God cares about you? Do you think God's watching you? Do you think God's really keeping account of what you do and don't do? Do you think, I mean, if he's God, do you think he wastes his time with that sort of thing? And so they said, first of all, like just forget about God. Secondly, they said, don't worry about death. Uh, in fact, they said death uh, is just oblivion. You, we have no idea what's on the other side. There, we don't know if there's heaven or there's hell. So just don't think about death. Just live in the moment. Live here in the here and now and just sort of forget those things, and that'll make you less anxious, apparently. Number three, um, they said forget as best you are able about pain, which is really good advice if you're not in pain, right? <laughs> and then they actually went on this. They said, actually, if your pain lasts really long, you're getting close to death. And so... So then you kind of go, well, then do I just forget about death again? Is it, where does the cycle stop, right? And then their fourth thing was this. They actually said, don't waste your time attempting to acquire anything which pleasures you because the acquisition of those things outweighs the effort required to gain them. Basically, just detach yourself, right? The summary is, forget about God, forget about death, forget about pain, forget about anything that might bring joy, and your worries are over. Just detach yourself from everything in life, and you'll be fine. There it is. There's the trick, right? But the real question is, if that worked, if that worked, would such a total detachment from life, from its large questions, from its complex circumstances, would that, would, would that constitute a life that is rich enough that it would be worth living? Detach yourself from everything and just be numb? And, and isn't Jesus offering us something more? See, what Jesus is describing and making available to us is a different kind of joy. It's unique. Christian joy is not based on our circumstances. It's not based on the objects that we acquire, the things that we do in any given moment. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church at Rome, and he says this in Romans chapter 5. There's a couple things that are really good here. Beginning in verse 2 in Romans 5, he says, Through him we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Notice what he says in verse 3, because it delineates the joy of Jesus from the happiness the world seeks. Notice this, we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, what is suffering? Suffering is when the unexpected, unfavorable happens in our life, isn't it? Suffering is when circumstances that are less than ideal, things we would never write into our story intentionally, that's suffering. When that stuff happens, that's suffering. And Christian joy is inclusive of circumstances that aren't just not ideal, they're actually bad. You can actually have joy in suffering. When the script takes a turn you didn't expect, there's a joy that's available to you. 
What the world calls happiness, by the way, is completely circumstantial, isn't it? Completely circumstantial. You, you, you can't have the world's version of happiness that's based on prosperity and comfort. You can't have that when everything goes against you. And so it's completely unpredictable and completely circumstantial. In fact, if, if you do some reading on happiness, and, uh, and there is a lot you can do to read on happiness, because a lot of unhappy people are writing about it these days. <laughs> you'll, you'll soon discover um, that, that there's basically a formula. Um, and this is everybody from... Uh, brilliant researchers at Harvard to the Dalai Lama, this is basically what you see everybody writing about, that this is what makes you happy. These five things, I've condensed it for you. So the good news, here you go. Here's the answer. Number one, be in possession of the basics, food, shelter, good health, and safety. Number two, get enough sleep. It's important, right? Get enough sleep. Number three, you want to be happy, have relationships that matter to you. Number four, take compassionate care of others and of yourself. Number five, have work or an interest that engages you. Do you realize how hopeless this is? I'm sure you, you can get all five of those things and you'll probably, you might be happy. But let me ask you this. Let me have you think about this. Most people in most places around the world, through most of the centuries of human history, have never had access to these things. To think of having two or three of them would be remarkable, right? How hopeless is this? What do, what, do you, what do you tell people when you say, well, you want to be happy, here's five things, and by the way, four of them are completely unattainable by you because of where you were born. Are they doomed to unhappiness, and does Jesus just sort of, like, sorry, you got born on the wrong continent? See, see, Christian joy, Christian joy, unlike our cultural happiness, not only can be maintained when circumstances go south, they actually grow in those circumstances. It actually increases during those times. You say, well, how can that possibly be? Well, if you trust God, and by the way, that's the key. If you trust God, when things go bad, it actually drives you towards him, doesn't it? It drives you towards him. And as you press into God, there is this kind of joy that begins to resonate inside of your heart. God meets you in this moment. But notice, it comes when you choose to trust God. Circumstances could cause you to mistrust God, right? Things happen, you go, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why is this happening? Why is the world like this? You start asking all those questions. You start lacking trust. This is where understanding the gospel becomes so critical to us. Because it makes the difference in whether or not we mistrust God and his motives or we actually believe God and trust his motives. Because of this, let me just explain this. When you and I become a Christian, when you make the decision to be a Christian, your salvation is not based on your good works or your efforts. Amen? It's not about what you do, right? That is fundamentally what it means to be a true Christian. You come to the realization, in fact, you cannot be a real Jesus follower if you believe it has anything to do with you being good enough. It is not about you being good, it is about you receiving grace. And the more you understand the grace that you've received, the more you begin to follow Jesus and what he's really all about. So it's not about being good. And when that happens, when you suddenly realize it's about this grace, you have this certainty about your future. When you realize, I didn't receive this because of something that I did. I didn't earn or deserve this. I actually got this because God lavished it on me. When you realize the love of God, when you see the unconditional nature of it, that actually secures your understanding of your future. 
You become a supremely confident person no matter what your circumstances are. And you need to realize that every other religion, every other philosophy in life basically says, if you live the way you ought to live, then God will bless you. The universe will bless you. You just do what you're supposed to do. Like, right? That's, I mean, if, let me just say this. If you believe the reason that God blesses you is because you've lived a good life, you say, well, I pray and I go to church and I give and I serve. You know what all of that means? That means you're in control. And if you're in control, that means you have no certainty about the outcomes because you're in control, right? That leads to a place of continual insecurity. Every religion, every philosophy is basically built on this well-known principle. It is what goes around comes around. How many of you heard that before? That's the way everything outside of Christianity works. What goes around comes around. But Christianity says this something completely different, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, which means that it's absolutely certain that you will share in the hope and the glory of God. And when you realize that, when you hear that, when you receive that, when you believe that, when you let that sink into your being, when you understand that you are unconditionally, unequivocally loved by God, that will change everything in you. And you become a supremely confident person no matter what life throws at you. C.S. Lewis, his autobiography, um, interestingly enough, is called Surprised by Joy. And in it, he talks about his life before he was a Christian. If you've read this before, you know this. Um, he says he was always trying to find joy by binging on things that gave him joy. He didn't have Netflix. I'm sure he would have binged on Netflix. Um, but here's an example. He actually binged on Icelandic sagas. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> Alex, for laughing at that. Yeah. Like, I, I, don't even, I don't even know what an Icelandic saga is. He got so into it. He, like, enjoyed them so much, he actually learned Old Norse so he could read Icelandic sagas in their original language. He literally read all of them and then realized there was no joy in them. He had, like, momentary joy. And so then he goes on, and in Surprised by Joy, he talks about how it just sort of went from that to other things. The other ones were far less weird, by the way. Um, they're just normal, everyday things. He threw himself at friendships, at relationships, those kinds of things. But, but then he realized this isn't panning out. This isn't working. And so he talks about how he began to realize that there was a God behind the joy that he was seeking. That those moments of joy were actually signposts pointing to something out in his future. And in the conclusion of Surprised by Joy, he says this about joy. He says, it was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While that other was in doubt, the point naturally loomed large in my thoughts. He who first sees it cries, look, and the whole party gathers round and stares. But when we have found the road and we're passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. There is a depth that comes to our lives. There is a depth of joy. There is a robustness of our peace. When our fixation moves from trying to see the signposts of joy to the one who actually put them in place. There is something that happens in our life. And that is what's happening at the birth of Christ. All of those things that bring you joy, they're simply signposts pointing to this God who actually enters into the story. He sees us and he hears us and he actually does something to help us. A God who enters in. 
And in John 16, that same intimate conversation I referenced earlier, in John 16, Jesus is comforting his disciples. Things are about to go dark. It's right before the crucifixion. And in this moment, he says this to them. In verse 21, he says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Why? He tells the disciples, he goes, listen, when you see me again, it will mean one thing and one thing only. I have conquered death. And if I have conquered death, that means nobody will ever be able to take your joy from me. When you see me again, there will be such a confidence in your heart. When you realize that I have resurrected from the grave, there will be such a confidence in your heart that no one will ever be able to take your joy because no circumstance will ever trump that reality of who I am and what I do. That's how you develop joy. You look at Jesus. You look to him. You consider Jesus. You look at your circumstances. You say, you know what my circumstances? I may lose my job. I may lose my money. I may lose people that I love. I may have family break apart. I may have all sorts of things happen in my life. But Jesus conquered the grave, which means that no matter how bleak this might be in this moment, there is a hope that I have beyond this and a joy that is made possible. When you look to Jesus, when you consider Jesus, you encounter a God who sees you and meets you and hears you and cares for you. The creator and sustainer of the universe will listen to you. And he's with you. Can there be a greater joy than knowing that there's a God who listens to your heart? Um, there is something, there is something that is deep, something that is buoyant about the certainty of God's attention to us and our circumstances, no matter what they may be, no matter what they, we might be encountering, he doesn't just address them. He enters into them. The Christ takes on humanity, takes our humanity upon himself in that Bethlehem manger and it is a proclamation. It is a signpost to the world. You are not alone. I see you. I hear you. And I am with you. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. And then we're going to close just a little bit of worship. And then I'll come off with the benediction. Would you pray with me right now? The pursuit of happiness, Lord. I just... Uh, somewhere we got a couple degrees off. We've kind of landed in this place where so many people are in despair. And even ourselves, we can just sit back and wonder, what about this and what about that? And, and I don't think any of that is a part of what you had planned for us. Lord, I just thank you for the joy that is made possible in you. I thank you for a joy that overcomes, overwhelms, gets us through any circumstance that life can throw at us. And Lord, I just thank you that you have entered in to our story so that we can experience that joy.
We love you. We thank you. And I pray that you would fill us with it to the brim. In your name we pray. Amen. But as you go, may you be men and women who engage in the pursuit of Jesus' joy. And may you be delivered from despair. And may your tank be so filled with the joy of Jesus that it is your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So good to see you all this morning. Have an amazing, amazing week. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.